As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another amazing episode of FedWatch. My name is Ansel Lindner. I'm usually joined by the brilliant co-host CK, but today CK had a conflict. Nolan is going to be helping us pull up the slack here on the show. Nolan, how are you doing today? What's up, man? I love life. I love life. <laughs> I can't complain. I got a bit of lag, though. I'm making sure everything's okay. We'll see what that is. Okay, not on, it's mine. Not on my end. You were coming in laggy. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Well, I just got fiber put in the house, so I hope it's not me. <laughs> you're, it's almost like you're coming in too quick. You're, 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 you're ahead in time. It's, you have the time machine one. It's a fast oh, wow. one. Wow. I've got awesome. a Starlink here, but I had my first trouble with it the other oh. day. The cloud coverage was too thick and slowed her down. But we're going to be okay. Wow. Technology, we're man. We're both on the cutting edge of technology here. So, <laughs> all right. Well, today, well, first, before we get started, guys that are watching live, hit like, subscribe, both on YouTube and Rumble. FedWatch, probably the most unique macro show in Bitcoin. I'm very proud to host it here on Bitcoin Magazine. So hit that like and subscribe. Join us now at our new time every Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll see my pretty face every single week. So, all right, today we have a lot to cover. We're going to cover the Powell speech yesterday at the Brookings Institute. We have a few clips. So we're going to watch that, get the, you know, the truth from the horse's mouth, what he's saying. Then we're going to look at a few macro charts. And then there's a little discussed kind of military escalation going on in Turkey. So we're going to read an article real quick about what's going on in Turkey. And that's going to do it for this week. So FedWatch, if you're watching for the first time, FedWatch is a very different sort of macro show. We have been contrarian and using independent thinking to kind of use a different lens to look at macro and Bitcoin. From the very beginning, we've taken a big picture look. We do talk about the data, like the individual pieces of data that come out about the economy, but we take that back and we try to plug it into a, you know, a holistic big picture of the economy. We've been ahead on the inflation deflation debate. We called the dollar almost exactly right. We were the only Bitcoin podcast out there that was a strong dollar, you know, had a strong dollar thesis over the last couple of years. We've been ahead on China. We've been ahead on Europe and the energy crisis and all of this stuff. So we, we're taking all this, we're building a holistic kind of narrative that's different from everybody else, and we're putting it out there. On those lines, I also have a new article that should be coming out in the next couple of days on Bitcoin Magazine. It's about deglobalization of both supply chains and credit markets 
and how Bitcoin fits into that, how I see Bitcoin fitting into that. So that's how FedWatch is different. I have more plugs, but Nolan, do you want to plug something for Bitcoin Magazine? Yeah, well, I do the, it, it, I'm glad you mentioned it because it actually dovetails with what you're doing. I also take a different look at stuff on my yeah. show at 8 a.m. every morning. We do the breakup and there we take a look at the, we just treat it all as psychology, right? That the economy, even though we're talking about numbers, has nothing to do with math. We're not, we're not talking about math, right? We're talking about psychological states. And that can be at times about, you know, persuasion, which is, you know, how you can convince someone of something that's only half true and then get it to, to seem completely true. And we just basically try to treat the dollar and cast it with Bitcoin as both, both of them are psychological engines propelling uh, an mm. economy forward. I continue to say that Bitcoin is the stronger engine because it's very easy to imagine a future powered by Bitcoin and very bleak when you look at the contrast, a, a future uh, powered by the dollar, it, not looking good, not looking good. Not look, for some, for sure, it looks great, you know, for the others, eh, not so much, you know. Wouldn't want well, to be in China right now. Wouldn't want to be in China looking for pork belly. No, well, that's very similar to what I've said about, you know, Bitcoin gives a, you know, gives you a brighter vision of the future. All the green shoots are going to be on Bitcoin. And when, I mean, we can see this, we can see this dichotomy of the future, but eventually everyone will start seeing that the old system is like geriatric and stagnant and all this. And then you have the Bitcoin future that is bright. So yeah, very, very similar narratives. Now my plugs are, I also do a podcast that separate from this, Bitcoin and Markets. You can find that at bitcoinandmarkets.com. FedWatch and Bitcoin and Markets are both on Fountain FM. So you guys should go and make sure you're subscribed over there and help promote, you know, lightning in this new way of supporting content creators over there on things like Fountain. So go check out the Fountain app and look for FedWatch and Bitcoin and Markets. I also do my live stream is not on YouTube. My YouTube channel was terminated about a month ago and I haven't gotten it back yet. So I do it on Telegram and Twitter spaces every morning. I simulcast on those two things. So, and last thing, last plug here, guys, in the bear market, we need to share. So listen to the podcast, share in the bear market, support your content creators that you listen to, that you get value from, and we will all make it through this bear market together. So, all right, that's all my opening remarks. Should we jump into Powell's comments? Well, and, and just to mention that I do believe, I do yes. believe that this Bitcoin winter will come to an end. I have a day. Oh, yeah. It's May 18th to May 20th in Miami when we all get together again for the Bitcoin show. And winter <laughs> will indeed be over by then. <laughs> and we will have a chance to in our great community where we're going to learn all kinds of stuff. It's not just about financial literacy. It's about energy literacy. It's about the tools you need to make it in the 21st century. That's the point of our show. We're, we're taking up the slack. Basically, the universities have all failed you. All higher education has failed you. <laughs> we are the only way. And, we need a paradigm uh, shift. We're there. We're there. We're there to yeah. flip reality upside down. Yeah. So yeah. let's start with our, you know, reality. The base unit of reality is money in this case, right? Time is money and money is time. So tell sure. us answer what's happening at the highest levels of the Federal Reserve. All right. So the first thing we're going to check out is a few, a few clips, clips from, from Powell. Powell. Oh, oh, I hear a reverb there, Chris. Sorry about that. I have an intro here about two minutes and then we can get into the clip. So Powell is speaking at the Brookings Institute. This is, you know, a, a DC kind of based think tank where a lot of the old chairmen go to write a blog or to write articles for Brookings. Bernanke, 
two Fed chairmen ago. He famously, in his first speech at Brookings, after you know becoming a civilian again, he said that monetary policy is 98% signaling. 98% signaling. So that uh, gives you a little clue of how that where I'm going to go with this whole story. Now, also before that, before Bernanke was Alan Greenspan. And he had obviously the famous Greenspan conundrum where he didn't understand why long-term interest rates were acting the way they were. So he didn't understand interest rates, even though he was supposed to be the maestro, the head, the very famous maestro at the Federal Reserve. Then also in FOMC minutes, that's the Federal Open Market Committee where they make their policy decisions. In those minutes, Alan Greenspan plainly said that they didn't know how to count money. It wasn't M2, it wasn't M1, it wasn't base money. They had no idea what was going on. They couldn't measure money. So we have not being able to measure money, not knowing how to control interest rates or what interest rates are doing. Then we have Bernanke saying it's 98% signaling. I mean, what does the Fed do here? So anyway, I wanted to set that up for this conversation here about Powell and what he is doing. So this speech is monetary policy. This speech is, is as, as important, important as... as get some. Sorry. This speech is as important as the FOMC meetings. If you go back and look at like the charts of the stock market, you see in mid-August when Powell made his Jackson Hole speech, that pretty much marked the top of the stock market back in August. So these speeches mean a lot that are kind of off schedule of the Federal Reserve's calendar. They're on just the chairman's calendar. These are Federal Reserve policy speeches. So I want to, when, when you're listening to him speak here, Try to think like, what is he signaling here? What does he want us to think? So that's all I have for a lead up. Okay, Chris, sorry. Now I'm ready for the first clip here, starting at two minutes and nine seconds. It's great to be here today. It's great to be back at Brookings. So today I'm going to offer a progress report on the FOMC's efforts to restore price stability to the U.S. economy for the benefit of the American people. And that report must begin by acknowledging the reality that inflation remains far too high. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation is imposing significant hardship, straining budgets, and shrinking what paychecks will buy. This is especially painful for those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. Price stability is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve and serves as the bedrock of our economy. Without price stability, the economy does not work for anyone. In particular, without price stability, we will not achieve a sustained period of strong labor market conditions that benefit all. We currently estimate that 12-month PCE inflation through October ran at 6.0%. All right. So he's talking there, uh, obviously, about inflation and about price stability. He hammered that phrase home, that term home, price stability. And I just want to say, like, Price stability isn't necessarily a good thing. Prices convey information about the market, about market conditions. So we want prices to actually change. We want prices to be volatile and give us this information that's going on in the economy. Price stability is kind of a phony, a phony goal. And the only reason why they have that phony goal is because they can't measure the money supply. They don't know what the supply of money is. So they have to target CPI, which is just a basket of prices, right? With a algorithm, a weight weighting algorithm on it. So anyway, that's 
they're using price stability and I just wanted to hammer that part. Nolan, do you have any comments about this very first section? Yeah, it's again, you see where Bitcoin supplants marketing with engineers, right? The engineering mm -hmm. of the network actually supplants the need to project marketing spin and framing. And because of course, that's exactly what we're talking about. When we say these are psychological engines, when we say this is all psychology, when we make that the, the basis, when you take the frame that Powell's taken, you're actually requiring that financial engineering aspect to be almost massaged into the narrative. Because if it's not there, there's no way to account for it. And it, it would be rejected, right? Whereas mm -hmm. in Bitcoin, we've actually lowered the threshold for even understanding what's going on. We, we know how to count. <laughs> we can count again. Right. Today, you know, because it's that simple. If you can't count, you can't manage. If you can't measure, you can't manage. That's a that's a famous adage in like business management schools, right? You can only manage what you measure. And if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So what are we really measuring in America? We're measuring sentiment. We're measuring those kinds exactly. of things. Exactly. And I continue to get worried when you hear about that. Okay, he, he, he's acknowledging the pressures of the American public. Well, I'm sure you've brought up the theory on this show several times, the dollar wrecking ball theory, which looks like yeah. it is, or the dollar milkshake theory, like the, 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 the idea that all of the liquidity in the world has now every other government printing money, all of their excess money gets converted in the end into US dollars. So everyone's printing is how we're printing. And they get angry when there's arbitrage between them. You're seeing already, I think two weeks ago, you had the South Korean central bank say, oh, you Fed Reserve, it's not fair. It's really hard. We can't compete with your high interest rates. All of the people are leaving our country and trying to get the better interest rates in your country. They're pulling our money out of Korea. You can't keep playing this way. It's not fair. There's no, fairness is for fairness is something made up so that stupid for people kids talk about. Yeah, it's for kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. It's not real. Like there's no fairness. There's no fairness here. So we're going to see what kind of pressures he's under. We've already seen a, a brewing fight really between fiscal policy and monetary policy. You know, mm -hmm. they're fighting inflation. And then you've got the politicians handing out stimmy checks for gas in California right? at a certain point. They're at cross purposes and you're going to continue to hear schizophrenic things that make no sense to anybody. Right. Exactly. All right. The next segment, we are going to talk about PCE. Now we talked a lot about CPI in the past. So people understand CPI is a basket of prices and they understand what that is. PCE is just a different algorithm, but it has some similar traits. Like they there's headline CPI and core CPI. There's also headline PCE and core PCE. So PCE just came out yesterday, actually, for it's, it's way delayed compared to CPI. But he's going to talk here about these constituent components a little bit and tell us what he's seeing. So Chris, next clip, please. To assess what it will take to get inflation down, it's useful to break core inflation into three component categories, core goods inflation, housing services inflation, and inflation in core services other than housing. Core goods inflation has moved down from very high levels over the course of 2022, while housing services inflation has risen rapidly. Inflation in core services X housing has fluctuated, but shown no clear trend. And I'll discuss each of these items in turn. All right. All right. So, so he broke down the three parts of core, which is goods, housing, and services. 
He said goods have come down drastically, and we've covered this a lot here on FedWatch saying, you know, the inventory cycle, you know, supply chains were wrecked, then supply chains flew forward. Now there's a big inventory hangover and prices are going to come down. Also, demand is shrinking because, you know, retail sales are down as well. Then the other component is housing, and that is screaming north. Now, the next clip I have is about to explain the housing market a little bit. And then the third thing was services, which he says has been mixed. So out of this core, we can kind of take away that goods are going down, housing is still going up, and services is neutral. So any comment on this, Nolan, or should we just jump into the next clip? Yeah, jump into the next one because I want to hear it in, in I want to hear it tailed onto this one before I react. Okay. We're ready for you, Chris. Housing services inflation measures the rise in the price of all rents and the rise in the rental equivalent cost of owner-occupied owner housing. Unlike goods inflation, housing services inflation has continued to rise and now stands at 7.1% over the past 12 months. Housing inflation tends to lag other prices around inflation turning points, however, because of the slow rate at which the stock of rental leases turns over. The market rate on new leases is a timelier indicator of where overall housing will go over the next year or so. Measures of 12-month inflation in new leases rose to nearly 20% during the pandemic, but have been falling sharply since about mid-year. As figure three shows, however, overall housing services inflation has continued to rise as existing leases turn over and jump in price to catch up with the higher level of rents for new leases. And this is likely to continue well into next year. But as long as new lease inflation keeps falling, we would expect housing services inflation to begin falling sometime next year. Indeed, a, declining, a decline in this kind of inflation underlies most forecasts of declining inflation. All right. So he's talking about housing inflation in, here, in this section, and he mentions what I've talked about, I think it was that two weeks ago with CPI coming out, or maybe it was last month, I don't remember, but there's this big lag in the housing part of CPI and also PCE. And he talked about it right there that because most people don't get new leases every month, right? So they wait till the end of the year. Till, so it's a slow moving indicator that has to price in these rises over a longer period of time. So it's, it's automatically about 12 months delayed. And that makes sense when you look at what's happening with the housing segment or component compared to what happened with the goods component last year at this time. So that was, you know, at the peak of the inflation or CPI adjustment for goods. And now a year later is going to be a peak for housing. So I just thought that was interesting. Are you, if I'm, let me try and repeat what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's like in consumable items, the, the reverberation of COVID was easier to acknowledge, manage, pass through the system than housing rentals in particular because the blockage wasn't even acknowledged, let's say, until even further down the line. And now for it to yeah. work out of the system, the nature of the contract is it, it is just going to work itself out over a longer period of time. Yeah, and you can think about the moratorium on evictions that they had during COVID too. So that is going to delay it even further. So pretty much, yes, the the goods inflation, quote unquote inflation, the price change in goods was more obvious and what we would expect, you know, it, they went up and they came down. Well, housing didn't go up very fast 
and now it's going up later, but it will follow probably goods inflation. So there's just a timing delay in the housing segment. Now, if if I were Powell and I would see this, I would be like, well, we know where the housing component's going to go. It's most likely going to follow where goods inflation is going. So we don't, you know, we don't need to necessarily continue to push forward with what we're doing because we know that inflation's PCE has kind of peaked and it's going to be coming over. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Then do you have anything more to add on the housing or should we go into the labor force participation? Yeah, let's go into labor force participation. With the housing, for me, it, it's just, it's exactly that. It looks like when I, you know, I can't help but see the the domestic housing situation in international terms as well. <clears throat> mm. Because what's going on in, in China, well, it'll have to have an effect here because as I understand, it's very difficult to know what's going on in China precisely right now, but it looks like the housing sector has completely collapsed. Like they're not paying, there's no mortgages being paid, and all of it's just being, you know, sort of taking second stage because of the protests and everything else going on simultaneously. But if we're going to talk about a major crash in one area, I think the nature of real estate now, and especially the nature of the hottest markets in America that have really pushed everything up, New York, San Francisco, LA, it was foreign in nature, right? There was a lot of foreign people using US real estate as piggy banks and as a, as a safety deposit, basically, that you could, you, your, your money was secured. Now, I'm, 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 I'm not, I don't know the actual numbers on that. It's just an impression. So I don't want to make it sound like I've done any research I've, I've read. Yeah, I think it's, that's major, mainly on the West Coast, I think, you know, from Vancouver down to LA, basically, I think those markets have all been really pop pumped by Chinese or even Japanese coming in and buying properties. But most of the country, I don't know, the, the way, the, well, the most current news that I have on the real estate market is that the government has come in, it's cut some rates, and it's given some bailout packages to these largest developers. So mm -hmm. it looks mm -hmm. like the acute stress is over for the time being, at least on the property, but they have fallen. Yes, they've fallen 25, 30%. And when you have 70% of the household savings is actually real estate, that is a big cut to overall wealth for normal, normal Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm definitely expecting almost like a, 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 it could be one of these global stories at some point. Yeah. I mean, it affects global credit markets. That's for dang sure. It's the large, the Chinese real estate is the largest single asset class in the world. It's something like $50 trillion uh, in, in Chinese real estate. Oh, so no. if they drop, if they drop 25%, it's definitely oh. going to affect the credit markets around the world. So yeah. Bitcoin Magazine podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. With open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now, through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. All right, let's jump into the next one. It's labor force participation. We're ready for you, Chris. Comparing the current labor force with the Congressional Budget Office's pre-pandemic forecast of labor force growth reveals a current labor force shortfall of roughly three and a half million people. This shortfall reflects both lower than expected population growth and a lower labor force participation rate. Participation dropped sharply at the onset of the pandemic because of many factors, including sickness, caregiving, and fear of infection. Many forecasters expected that participation would move back up fairly quickly as the pandemic faded. And for workers in their prime working years, it mostly has. Overall participation, however, remains well below pre-pandemic trends. Some of the participation gap reflects workers who are still out of the labor force because they're sick with COVID-19 or continue to suffer lingering symptoms from previous COVID infections or long COVID. But recent research by Fed economists finds that the participation gap is now mostly due to excess retirements, that is, retirements in excess of what would have been expected from population aging alone. These excess retirements might now account for more than 2 million of the 3.5 million person shortfall in the labor force. What explains these excess retirements? So health issues have surely played a role as COVID has posed a particularly large threat to the lives and health of the elderly. In addition, many older workers lost their jobs in the early stages of the pandemic when layoffs were historically high. The cost of finding new employment may have appeared particularly large for these workers given pandemic-related disruptions to the work environment and health concerns. Also, gains in the stock market and rising house prices in the first two years of the pandemic contributed to an increase in wealth that likely facilitated early retirement for some people. The data so far do not suggest that excess retirements are likely to unwind because of retirees returning to the labor force. Older workers are still retiring at higher rates and retirees do not appear to be returning to the labor force in sufficient numbers to meaningfully reduce the total number of excess retirees. So the second factor contributing to, labor, to the labor supply shortfall is slower growth in the working age population. The combination of a plunge in net immigration <clears throat> and a surge in deaths during the pandemic probably accounts for about one and a half million missing workers. Policies to support labor supply are not the domain of the Fed. Going the extra mile is more rewarding. All right. All right. Well, that, that, that we can cut it there. We just had a couple seconds left on that. So it, very interesting about the labor force. He's saying three and a half million in the labor force or not in the labor force anymore. So, you know, we talk about unemployment rate, but we don't talk a lot about the labor force participation rate. That is the amount of, or the percentage of working age population that actually has a job. I think pre-pandemic, it was about 63.5%, and now it's down at about 62%. 
And you can see that's three and a half million people difference. So I think it's one thing that he didn't mention. He did mention COVID, 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 but he didn't mention the treatment for COVID that could also be possibly keeping people out of the labor force. You know, if you have severe reactions, then you might not be able to keep your same job, right? So there are a lot of things that he didn't mention there, which I thought he could have said, but what, what's your thought on the yeah, demographics that, that, and labor force participation? Yeah, that my instinct was right on you. It's, it's the, the cat on the roof, you know, the cat on the roof is like what you say before there's sort of bad news, right? You know, there's a cat on the roof and then, you know, He's dead, right? So it's the thing you're not hearing. It's the it's the part of the sentence where the bad news is that mm -hmm. they haven't actually delved into, which is this quiet quitting, which is this incentive to even yeah. work because the system is breaking, right? Because we see right now. I mean, I I go to the the you know I go out and about and I see people in restaurants or wherever. I don't really eat in a lot of restaurants anymore. I'll be honest. COVID totally wiped that from my life, but you still see it around. You know, go buy, go try and do a basic transaction in a store these days. They don't know the payment system. They don't know what the product is. Everyone's new. The, 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 you know, going around shopping the other day was, you know, it was, it was amateur hour. And these are for simple commercial transactions. I'm talking about buying an iPhone at a T-Mobile. And they have a lot of trouble now, right? Now, that could just be my experience. But what you see is this lack of motivation, this lack of orientation around what's happening next and what we're going to do. And, and, and that's what wasn't mentioned. So the good news is, though, the good news is there's plenty of jobs. And all we really <laughs> need to know, right, all we really need to know about our economy, I think in the end are two things. And, and I think Bitcoin is going to bring this home once we get rid of the obfuscated fake science of these economists and, and everything else. It's your energy policy, right? Your energy policy, because that can actually determine a lot without you even realizing it. Like, I don't think Texas is ever in risk of being poor, right? They're just so rich in energy that what could go wrong other than, True. you know, they just have everything. They have every type of energy. And then the other part is labor. If people are working, people are motivated, getting up, going to work, doing their thing. Great. What I heard from there is some boomers retiring, predictable, we should have, that should be priced in more or less. And if some of them went early because of health, we can still handle that. Luckily, Americans have enjoyed high levels of immigration for years, and that's allowed us to have a strong replacement rate. And the demographics of the United States are actually really good compared to every other country in its economic level of sophistication. So Europe, not sure. the case, right? really not the case. They have major, major demographic problems. China, you know, there's people who say, there's people who say everything that's going on in China right now is really because the demographics are a lie. And only Xi understands that the population is much lower, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. There, there's stuff out there saying that there are, there are about 100 million people off in the census. But that problem with 100 million, yeah, it's not 1.4 billion, it's 1.3. But the 100 million missing are not what Mr. Powell just mentioned, people retiring and that that stuff. No, they were young people. They, they didn't have them. They weren't in the mix. They, they never were born. And, you know, it's not really a sophisticated sensor, census system in China. And when they finally figured it out a couple of years ago, I'm told a lot of what's going on in China today can be explained by that fact and that Xi is the person who's managing this outside. Now, again, speculation, right? Speculation. Yeah. But what I mean is when I hear Powell say demographics, labor force, strong, 
right? And, and, he, and he did sort of mention that immigration has to continue to, to make up for what was lost. That makes sense to me, right? That makes sense to yep. me. And then the other piece that he didn't mention, energy, but that's just the reality of America. And we're going to be okay for energy. The rest of the world, you know, good thing this is not called the ECB watch because <laughs> <laughs> we would have another story. Well, to touch on a few things you said there, yeah, China, yeah, their most recent census data is showing that 100 million uh, shortfall. So oh, it is public. I didn't know that. Oh, I, yep. okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there, it is 1.3 and, you know, it's a lot of the millennials. It's basically the millennial generation that they don't have at all, really. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really bad. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention about retirees or early retirees, because these are people that are retiring before they expected them to retire, right? Now, what can we say about older people in the workforce? They're usually much more senior. They have a lot more institutional knowledge. They know what's going on. They are more productive because they have been in their career for a long time. And usually they are the most productive people at doing what they're doing. And if you're replacing them with, you know, fresh out of college, those are like the least productive, you know? So you're replacing these very productive people with less productive people. So even if it's a one-to-one -one swap, productivity per capita will probably go down because of this, which is not a good thing for if you're talking about GDP or you're talking about credit markets or you're talking about all that stuff. That's one of these hidden things in demographics that as people retire, they're replaced by less productive people. And that's really bad in places like Russia. Now I am, I predicted that Russia is going to win this Ukraine thing, but over in a longer period of time, say 20, 30 years, I think Russia is going to have a really hard time because they have a much older population. Most of their engineers are very senior. They don't have a lot of younger people that are being engineers. All their engineers are from the Soviet era. And so when those people retire or die, then they're not going to have a workforce to replace them. So things like that are really important when you talk about demographics. But well, um, especially yeah. when you mentioned the millennial generation, you know, there is a country next to America that has a millennial generation and you can start to see the future of trade. When you talk about deglobalization, yes. agreed, because America has everything it needed in a healthy young population in Central America and Mexico. Yeah. I continue to predict that everything that was in China is just going to move and it will simultaneously fix America's immigration issues, right? It'll just become a lot more integrated continent-wide because all the companies will be running work visas for their people at this place and that place. And But if everything does come back to the continent at least, I think you're going to see almost an expansion of the idea of the United States. And I'm not saying Mexico becomes a United State or anything, but with what's going on in El Salvador, with Texas and even the American situation, yeah. you know, what we're what I predict what we're going to see with, you know, Trump brought this in, the actual role of the president changing where you can actually just treat it like a TV show and it doesn't matter because we can replace him with an 80 year old guy <laughs> who doesn't really you know totally work either. Yeah. I'm for Fetterman. I'm a Fetterman 2024 guy because I want the, <laughs> I want it lower still. You know, I want less IQ. But the point is, you're going to see states, you know, for so long in America, we thought that the states were just the minor leagues. That, that was sort of a World War II mindset. Right. And, and even a Federal Reserve mindset, if you will. Right. Like, yeah, the banking stuff is, you know, not even federal or a reserve. But somehow 
the connotation that this was a federal competency. And it never was a federal competency. The buggers, that was a state's right issue. Banking is state's right. You know, we, we, people don't understand all the time that the states are actual partners. It's, it's a division of powers and they're supreme and sovereign in their own powers. And we forgot that after World War II. We kind of just left the aircraft carriers going and we just kept the whole World War II machine running. And it was just like, okay, here it is. What we're seeing by changing the job of president, by changing the orientation of all these things, the states are going to express themselves more. And I think there is going to be a type of coordination around Bitcoin states of America. There's no constitution. It's just states that are smart enough to do what Texas announced this week, the advice they announced this week, that there's going to be tax incentives for adding capacity to the grid because of Bitcoin mm -hmm. mining, right? So if you add capacity to the grid because of Bitcoin mining, tax incentive, right? If you, so basically they can run the engine even hotter, right? They can run the yeah. whole electrical capacity of Texas even hotter now, which is, can only be a good thing, right? So you're going to start to see, and simultaneous, you had New York, you know, ah, yeah, we're going to virtue signal. You can only mine with renewables, right? So they can just, you know, freeze. So you're going to see that <laughs> you're going to see, uh, you're going to continue to see this change, right? And, and you're going to see places that identify because they actually have, they actually have sane finances. They have properly motivated, oriented institutions in their country that know how to build electricity grids and know how to make sure there's no brownouts. We get the brownouts here in the Northeast, man. We're all excited. It's going to be winter. We're going to get a brownout. We're selling all our energy to Europe, you know, because we got to backstop the whole issue over there and we got to give them all of our natural gas. And we, we were too good for coal plants here in the Northeast. So we didn't need those either. You know, it's great. It's great. Luckily, yeah, luckily I live next to Quebec, which is the uh, the same thing as Texas. It's just the same thing. It's just Catholic versus Protestant, but it's the same energy <laughs> rich. Doesn't matter what they do. You know, as Tesla said, the greatest form of energy is waterfalls. And Quebec built the most amazing hydro infrastructure the world knows. So we're, we got all the energy we need, you know? Awesome. Yeah, Manny, you said so much there. And we could probably do a whole show on just the future of North America, because I am also a huge bull on North America, not just the United States, but yeah, Mexico and Canada, everybody together, big bull on North America. But let's finish up this Powell stuff. This is the last little clip of him summarizing this. And I want you to pick out that he said what he says about going forward, that he says it is it perhaps is appropriate to moderate or what does he say? Yeah, to moderate rate hikes. So let's play this next clip, please, Chris. So let's then sum up this review of economic conditions that we think we need to see to bring inflation down to 2%. Growth in economic activity has slowed to well below its longer run trend, and this needs to be sustained. Bottlenecks in goods production are easing, and goods price inflation appears to be easing as well, and this too must continue. Housing services inflation will probably keep rising well into next year, but if inflation on new leases continues to fall, we will likely see housing services inflation begin to fall later next year. Finally, the labor market, which is especially important for inflation in core services X housing, again accounting for more than half of the, of the category, shows only tentative signs of rebalancing, and wage growth remains well above levels that would be consistent with 2% inflation over time. So despite some promising developments, we have a long way to go in restoring price stability. Returning to monetary policy, my FOMC colleagues and I are strongly committed to restoring price stability. 
After our November meeting, we noted that we anticipated that ongoing rate increases will be appropriate in order to attain a policy stance that is sufficiently restrictive to move inflation down to 2% over time. Monetary policy affects the economy and inflation with uncertain lags, <clears throat> and the full effects of our rapid tightening so far are yet to be felt. Thus, it makes sense to moderate the pace of our rate increases as we approach the level of restraint that will be sufficient to bring inflation down. The time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting. Given our, our progress in tightening policy, the timing of that moderation is far less significant than the questions of how much further we will need to raise rates to control inflation and the length of time it will be necessary to hold policy at a restrictive level. It is likely that restoring price stability will require holding policy at a restrictive level for some time. History cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy, and I'll close by saying that we will stay the course until the job is done. All right, so there you have it. He said that it might be appropriate to moderate rate hikes as soon as the December meeting, and that is what sent the stock market higher and a bunch of uh, market, the dollar lower, you know, Bitcoin a little bit higher. Pretty much everybody reacted in a very good fashion when he said that. So it looks like a Fed pivot might be coming. Nolan, any reaction to that last bit? Yeah, it's it's as advertised. They're doing their signals. They can, and as I understand, there's going to be a process now that they can, they usually follow up these public hearings, right? There's always the hearing, and then next week they can actually send new trial balloons up to if there's been, let's say, if, if people have reacted the right way in, in the way they anticipated and wanted to provoke, because that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're trying to persuade, they're trying to nudge. They wanted that bump of whatever we saw across the, the stock exchanges and, and, and markets, right? They're, they're trying to induce that because there's worry that they've overcorrected, right? That mm -hmm. there's worry yeah. there's overcorrected. So they're trying to find that space now where they can have that plausible deniability if they have gone too far. And a lot of people say they have, right? Michael Burry has come out and said they've gone way too far. We're on a cliff, but of course he says that every week. But there are there are people out there saying that this was too much, this was too far, and uh, you hear him being a typical salesperson, typical yeah. marketing work. This is a marketing job. The whole system is a marketing job, and uh, and so he's a good marketer, right? You know. Yeah, I think he is, and he ended it there with saying, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes, or we'll do it, go until the job is done. So definitely marketing. All right, so that's all my my stuff on the. Federal Reserve and Jerome did Powell. Hear, uh, did you hear that Daily Wire has optioned the Atlas Shrugged? So the news site has optioned to make the movie Atlas Shrugged, the Ayn Rand. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you know that Greenspan was her student? No. I knew he was involved, yeah. He was yeah. a big gold bug early on. Have you ever read his children's book? No. Clouds and Rainbows, I think. Rainbows and Clouds. Check it out. The Boston Fed published a kid's book, by the way. It's, okay. it's amazing. It's, it's actually for Bitcoiners, by the way. Oh. It's, you get a sense of, let's say, a civil war, like one of these like Harry Potter muggle things inside of the Fed Reserve when you read it, right? You get this idea that like we don't really know on the outside. But it's, it's pretty remarkable. It's about a girl who lives underground. It's a civilization that lives underground, but it's all black and white. And mm. she sees color, the sun gold come through and uh, picks a flower. And it brings color to the area, but then they want to divide the color, the, the flower, and they don't know how. 
it's because then the flower dies, but then she finds a place to plant it and grow new flowers, but they've got to administer them in a way that makes people happy, but it nevertheless brings color to their area and livens everything up. It's pretty neat stuff, man. And Greenspan was heavily involved in it. Yeah. Yeah. I know he was a big gold bug. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk about, let's skip the charts for now. Wishes and rainbows. Yeah. Wishes and rainbows. Pardon me. Wishes and rainbows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. All right. Let's go into the Turkey situation. So I do have one slide, I believe on this or two slides. So Chris, if I could get slide number 14, please. I'm just going to read this article to get all the audience up to speed on what's going on in Turkey. So of course, Turkey is just across the Black Sea from Ukraine. And Turkey has been pivotal in some of the, the quote unquote peace talks that have gone on between Russia and Ukraine. But in this article, the headline is, Turkey is about to invade Syria and the U.S. won't do much to stop it. Two weeks ago, a massive explosion rocked a busy road in Istanbul, killing six people and wounding wounding more than 80. Within hours, Turkish authorities blamed the deadly attack on the YPG, a Syrian Kurdish group that has worked closely with the United States in the fight against ISIS. Turkey's response has been emphatic. After accusing Washington of being complicit in the attack, Ankara has carried out a series of air raids against Kurdish military targets in Iraq and northern Syria, some of which are also occupied by American soldiers. And I think they have about a thousand, less, a little bit less than a thousand American soldiers. It looks like those airstrikes are just the beginning. Turkish leaders are now suggesting that a ground invasion is imminent, a move that would expand hostilities in northeastern Syria to a level not seen since the U.S., YPG and their allies beat back the majority of ISIS forces in the region. The reports indicate that Washington has recently brought a number of soldiers across the border from Iraq into Syria, meaning the U.S. troops could be caught in the crossfire. For American policymakers, this situation poses some serious problems. Washington's support of the YPG has long been a thorn in the side of Ankara, which claims that the militia is affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. And the PKK is a Marxist-Leninist group over there in Kurdistan. So they're saying that these Marxist-Leninists have bombed Istanbul, and they're going to go take them out. So let's continue here. While the two NATO allies, that would be Turkey and the U.S., Consider the PKK as a terrorist organization, the U.S. maintains that the YPG is a separate group with its own interests. This difference in views is at least partly a practical move by the U.S., which has leaned heavily on the YPG-led Syrian Democratic Forces to push back ISIS. As National Security Council spokesman John Kirby recently lamented, a Turkish offensive would, quote, limit and constrain, end quote, the SDF's anti-Islamic state operations, quote, and we want to be able to keep pressure on ISIS, end quote, Kirby said. Quote, the United States did not approve Turkey's recent strikes in Syria, said State Department spokesman in a statement to Responsible Statecraft, that's the website here, adding that the U.S., quote, urges all parties to immediately de-escalate the fighting. We continue to oppose any military action that destabilizes the situation in Syria, end quote. Despite these strong words, The war in Ukraine has forced Washington to recalibrate its priorities, as Giorgio Cafiero of Gulf State Analytics told Responsible Statecraft. Quote, the Biden administration sees Turkey as a very important ally vis-a-vis the conflict in Ukraine, noting Ankara's key role 
in provisioning weapons to Kiev and moderating talks between the warring parties. Quote, the White House is not interested in aggravating Turkey right now. So Washington will likely avoid using its significant leverage over Ankara, including a pending deal that would enable Turkey to buy a fleet of 50 new F-16s to try to prevent an offensive in Syria. Instead, the U.S. leaders will continue to call on both Kurdish and Turkish fighters to de-escalate. In some ways, this marks an acceptance of a fait accompli. Turkish officials are the only ones who have concluded that the YPG is behind the Istanbul attack. So the U.S. says they can't confirm it. But to a certain extent, that doesn't matter. Turkey has long viewed the Kurdish militant presence in Syria as a top national security threat, and leaders in Ankara had already been floating the idea of a new ground offensive in the months before the bombing. On top of all that, Turkish President Erdogan faces a difficult election next June and failing to respond decisively to an attack in Turkey would be a significant liability for the already embattled president. As Turkey expert Sibel Ote recently argued, quote, electoral defeat is a very likely outcome for Erdogan, end quote. Quote, Turkey doesn't take orders from others. We are a key actor in the region and makers of our own foreign policy. Own foreign policy is a powerful and compelling message that attracts voters from every corner of the Turkish society, Ote wrote. The situation in northeast Syria is also vital to another hot-button electoral issue, Syrian refugees. As Turkey's economic crisis continues to worsen, many voters, voters have grown resentful towards the several million displaced Syrians that Ankara has welcomed since 2011. While the situation in much of Syria remains too dangerous for refugees to return, Erdogan has suggested the creation of a safe corridor in the country's northeast where they could be repatriated. For Ankara, this means getting rid of the YPG presence in the region, which would give Turkish officials the added benefit of creating a buffer zone between Turkey and its Kurdish forces. Almost done here. Meanwhile, Russia has also reportedly tried to dissuade Turkey from a full-scale offensive in Syria. After initially claiming, or sorry, after initially calling for a limited incursion, Moscow is now asking the YPG to hand over control of a buffer zone to the government in Damascus which is led by Russia ally Bashir al-Assad. News reports indicate the YPG cadres are divided on whether to take the deal, with some still holding out hope the United States will find a way to prevent a Turkish attack. And the YPG isn't alone in considering a shift in its policy towards Damascus. In a press conference last week, Erdogan said he would be open to meeting with Assad, despite the fact that Turkey has helped lead the fight against the Syrian regime since 2011. So... Looks like things are heating up over there in Turkey, in Syria. And one thing I want, I want to put this in context. So for a long time, I've been talking about how the rimland or the kind of the rim of fire there in Europe and Asia is going to heat up as the U.S. presence and U.S. role as world policeman winds down. And I have a chart also. If you can go to the last chart there, Chris, number 15, please. That is, it's an image, this is from classic geopolitics. Back in the day, Mackinder, he has the heartland theory. The, that's the, you know, world island, basically, Eurasia, with the heartland and the rimland. So who controls the heartland controls the rimland, and who controls the rimland controls the world. That's what Mackinder said. So my theory is that the rimland is going to explode. The rimland is going to have lots of fighting, and the people that think that when the U.S. pulls back, 
that the world is going to be free and prosperous and all this. I don't think so. I think the minute the U.S. loses influence, we're going to see more and more things like Ukraine, now like Turkey, like Iran happening, like Pakistan and like China, all in that rimland area is really catching fire. So I expect these type of things to escalate and you know spread out over this entire area. Now, what does that do for credit markets? That's kind of what my piece that I'm releasing on Bitcoin Magazine here in the next couple of days, what that will cover for credit markets and why Bitcoin in a world that's more fragmented, why we need a currency that is neutral. You know, you don't want to have U.S. dollars held in a bank that is you're trusting somebody to make sure that you have access to those dollars. So Bitcoin is a neutral currency that can trade in a fragmented world. All right, Nolan, that was my monologue. What, what comments do you have about the situation in Turkey? Well, I'll, so we'll do Turkey first, and then then I'll add uh, on the Iran uh, and Rimland piece. So the Turkey for the Turkey one first. So, pardon me. My prediction there is <clears throat> simple. We've seen what Turkey is doing with the drones, right? They they noticed how this whole conflict was managed at the start in 2011. Remember, Obama unleashed the whole drone program, and the drones at the time were very sophisticated, usually one-strike devices. What we've seen coming out of Ukraine and Russia has completely altered all logic of violence and warfare and how things work because of the types of drones they're using, right? Now they've got Navy drones, drones that spit out drones, that spit out bombs. Even when you look at the sophistication of the Javelin system the Americans supplied the Ukrainians with, if you, you know, not exactly a drone, but two people can operate it. You get one sort of an iPad targeting system, and then one person holds the launcher, but you can be miles and miles and miles away. And while not a drone, I mean, it's a camera and a gun so that flies. So it's pretty close, right? <clears throat> so, you know, even tanks, right? Tanks finished. You know, I predicted the minute the Russian-Ukrainian war started that we would see that our military armaments from world war ii that we're still using are totally useless and tanks look the most vulnerable right tanks you can just drop something on top and if you know how some of the bombs are working it sort of penetrates the armor and then it glows on the inside of the tank really devious stuff now turkey has a long history with these drones because this was all on their border this kurdistan thing has been going on for a long time when americans originally went into iraq they gave the presidency of the country to the kurds in order to help keep the peace basically between the shia and the sunnis but that created a ton of resentment and that's why isis went there first and grabbed the yazidis and grabbed all those people because they were getting sort of favored by america in the early part of the war and then there was a price to pay for that so the, the particular types of munitions, the drones, have been used in that particular area on Turkey's border now for over 10 years. And Turkey cloned them and copied them. And we've seen Turkey wash its hands a few times already because Turkey definitely does play both sides, right? NATO member, but we don't know. And they play footsie with these guys and footsie with those guys. So I continue to expect Turkey to project influence in that area. Yeah. Um, I, I continue to expect Turkey to go like almost Ottoman on what's going on in the area because it does have, I would say it's the drones that give them the capacity. The drones separate them from their neighbors. Iran has the same situation, but I think they're going to get everything they want by just sending drones in and they'll get the death toll they need for Adrogen's re-election, right? They're going to get the death toll they need, but guess what you get to do with drones? Ah, oh, it wasn't me. I didn't know. 
<laughs> you don't get to catch a guy who speaks a language anymore. You know, in the old days in World War II, it was easy. You pick a guy, he speaks German, we're good, he's a spy, we got him. You know, you can't do that anymore. It's video games, right? The, we, the guy yeah. could be in America. It's all video games. So the, the size, the cost, all of that stuff, the effectiveness. So I continue to think that, that Turkey, it will be fog of war. We're not going to get any clear guilty or anything like that because they are NATO members and they do have responsibilities. So they're going to continue with the drone proxy war that America seems all too happy to participate in. <laughs> they're having a great time. Billions yeah. and billions 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 that are heading over there. So, Yeah, I agree that Turkey's influence will probably grow in the region. They <clears throat> straddle Europe and Asia, right? So they, like you say, they kind of have one foot over here, one foot over there, which they literally do. They literally have one foot in Europe and one foot in Asia. So they will live up to their history. They'll live up to their geography. And they, I think they will project power in that region. Greece better watch out because Greece is on the other side of this. Well, at the same time, I do, you know, in the history of Turkey, Ataturk. Remember Ataturk? Yep. And Ataturk was the first, you know, he was a great guy. He was, he was one of the young Turks. We had a part of his life that was no good. But he was the person who said, until females have the same education as males, we will not make it. He refused to wear any traditional clothing and forced Turkey to be a secular country. So I still think Turkey is going to project power. I just think that the Adrogians of the world, their time is limited. And I do think, not, not that Turkey is going to become a Western democracy. That's not what I'm saying. They're not, they're not going to turn into France. <laughs> it's not France. But... I think you are going to see Turkey fit in in the world in a, in a really great way. I, I, I believe that. I could be wrong, but I hope anyway that, that it goes that way. Because they're on the front line here. They've got the inflation first. And, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to what you said next. The whole, and I guess this fits into, you know, dollar milkshake theory. You know, the, the whole world of Ray Dalio, the dollar is going to be weak. Like you said, no, 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 no. The dollar is going to be strong. Everyone needs dollars. There's a liquidity crunch. They need the dollars. But now we're starting to see the tension of different monetary policies infringing, as I mentioned, Korea saying it's not fair that the U.S. system, the U.S. policies are, are more attractive. So here's what happens. If we keep the petrodollar, as in the only market in the world that oil can be made in is dollars, which is already broken, like that, that no matter what is broken, we can all admit that what happened in Russia and Ukraine smashed the monopoly of the US dollar as the only instrument by which you can buy oil. Everyone has agreed you can buy it with Russian rubles, but what's happening in the Russian ruble is it sucks. So then now the Russian ruble has had to replace all of its reserves with yuan, Chinese yuan, which also sucks. And <clears throat> go to Brazil, you know, this whole BRICS thing, like what's going on in BRICS right now? BRICS, we've got a, a election of a month where we don't have results. The military looks like it's going to support the old guy who some people say won. You've got Russia in war. You've got China. We don't know. Right. So they're not setting, they're not creating a fire. This is not, they're not creating a currency to compete with a dollar, but they still can't accept. They still can't accept right. the U S dollar as the primary, primary trade vehicle. So my theory continues to be the following that as long as we Bitcoiners make American energy companies, richer American energy companies, if we make them richer, we continue to create an actual obvious transparent market between energy and Bitcoin that way. And by making them richer, it starts with just helping them out a bit with the methane, but it moves quickly to financing the entire operations, small modular nuclear reactors, the whole energy sphere, right? If we take over U.S. energy 
I mean, they call the shots in the world as it is today. I mean, whatever happened in in Nord Stream, yeah. guess who guess who made Nord Stream happen? It could have been some politicians, but it wasn't. Someone backstopped it. It was American energy companies. They said to Europe, "We can do this. Don't worry. Don't don't be victim to Russia. We're going to take market share, right? We're, you know, we'll we'll supply it, right?" So this whole thing in Russia and Ukraine still looks to me like America looking for market growth in energy, and it didn't work mm. out the way. They thought it would, so they got a new market, but they might have lost their monopoly and and the symbiotic relationship of oil and the dollar and the petrodollar as the measuring stick for global economic, you know, anything, just the measurement for global economics will be threatened because the the dollar just isn't palatable for some. I think in the end, yeah. if we do it on our side and it means something to Americans that there is a cost of energy tied to Bitcoin, BRICS will adopt it immediately. And 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 it will be a separate reference point and a real counterbalance to the petrodollar. So we love the Ring of Fire. We love the heart. <laughs> we love these places. We love them. You know. All right. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point to end the show on here. So because we're running up against time, Nolan, do you have any plugs you want to make? I mean, this is your show, but do you have anything else to add here at the end? Well, we always like to remind people that Bitcoin winter will be over officially may 18th in miami you can you can count on it it will be hot <laughs> i'll be there Bitcoin winter it'll be great right so yep. coin magazine bitcoin 2023 may 18th to 20th get your ticket it's going to be a hell of a time you'll see ansel we'll have fun we're going to do something on a on, we're going to do FedWatch live on the desk and everyone's going to love it it's going to be so much fun all right well guys thanks for joining like subscribe like subscribe thank you very much share in the bear market and check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media, the original version of this podcast, and community links. Also, check out bitcoinandmarkets.com, where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It featured articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.